One of the, the things that I promised myself when I started doing this is that it was always going to be fun. It's sort of the cardinal rule. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the For the Love Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, and I'm extremely excited about today's episode. It's the first of a two-part series. It's our first multi-part series of the podcast, and it's about a hobby of mine that's becoming nearer and dearer to my heart each day, chocolate. Yummy, yummy, decadent chocolate. Over the past year or so, I've gotten more and more into making my own chocolate, stepping back all the way into the bean-to-bar craft chocolate craze. And a few weeks ago, I went to the Dallas Chocolate Festival and got to meet a lot of exciting vendors, taste a lot of different flavors of chocolate, and I ran into someone um, who is an extremely data-oriented chocolate maker. Uh, his name is Brian Mitikin. He started out his career as a software engineer and a process engineer working with secure control systems in San Antonio. He um, made a career out of that and got into chocolate making uh, as he was partially retiring from that business and stepping away from the day-to-day operations. And over the past few years, he has founded a craft chocolate maker called Casa Chocolates in San Antonio. So he was nice enough to sit down with me today and cover a bunch of different aspects of uh, chocolate making. Uh, We started out going over the history of chocolate, and then we gave an overview of chocolate making all the way from harvesting and roasting all the way through grinding and uh, tempering and molding your chocolate. Uh, We talked for so long that I am going to split this up into two episodes. Uh, The second episode is going to talk about the different types of chocolate, some different data about chocolate, and specifically what Brian has done with Casa Chocolates and their approach to chocolate and the science versus the art of chocolate. So give this one a uh, a listen and then uh, move over to part two, which will debut just a little bit after this one uh, for some more details there. Uh, as always, if you have questions, please uh, visit us at ForTheLoveOfData.com and uh, look up the show notes and leave a comment there. You can also find um, some of the information that we talk about in the next two episodes. So without any further ado, let's learn more about how to make delicious chocolate with Brian. So first off, tell me what your experience was with uh, the, the, the chocolate festival and how you... Uh you thought about that. I was really glad to run into you based on the recommendation of the other fellow at the uh, at the other booth. No, we enjoyed it. It was our first official chocolate festival. We had been to uh, two or three before that, the big ones up in Seattle and places like that. And I had met a couple of people at a local fine chocolate meeting up in Dallas uh, and really enjoyed their company. And the, the thing that we learned about this industry is that there's a tremendous amount of sharing that goes on. Uh, this is not an industry where people are, you know, cloistering in the corners and keeping all of their information separate. Uh, you go to these events and not only do, uh, do people, uh, have a, a propensity to share, but there's also, it's extremely common to talk about problems, solutions, and, uh, what our experiences have been at all levels. And it's something that's markedly different from other industries I've been in where, you know, we all worry about company secrets and, and how we do what we do. Uh, a lot of proprietary data. 
Whereas in this world, uh, I think people come at it differently. It's a bigger picture. Uh, and we all have the same goal, make really fine quality chocolate and, and give it to people to help educate the public. It's still a very young industry. Fine chocolate's really only been around for 15 or 20 years. So we don't have a lot of people. Cost to entry at a high level, uh, production-wise, is a little bit high. But yet there's tons of people out there making small-scale chocolate in their homes. So it really does work for everybody. It's, it's when you get in production that you have to start spending some money. But it's a very accessible uh, environment. So I will say that uh, this is definitely a little bit of a selfish episode for me because I'm one of those people trying to make some of it at home. And so it's been a joy for me to try to go through and discover that. And uh, I'm hoping to pick up some some tips and tricks along the way as we share some information with our listeners about the history and overview of chocolate. And I know we kind of jumped right in the middle of things here, uh, but first... Um, Introduce yourself, Brian. I know you, uh, you're the founder of Casa Chocolates, and to bring people up to speed, you and I met uh, several weeks ago at the Dallas Chocolate Festival, which is an annual festival that comes to Dallas. I think it's been here for somewhere around seven to nine years, and if there's anybody that lives right. in the Dallas area or even other parts of Texas, man, if you want a great treat, come to this festival. It is heaven on earth from my perspective, so... You go there and you get to sample chocolates from about 50 different people. You can ask different questions. You can learn. Uh, I mean, it's just a it's a it's an environment and a group of people like you were saying that's that's just wonderful to be around. And if you didn't know it was there, you, you, you just don't know what you're missing. Yeah, so. I completely agree. We probably gave out 2,000 samples of chocolate, so there's plenty for everyone. And I think everyone you can't have people upset while they're eating chocolate. So, Brian, give people a little bit of your background. I know you were a process engineer before you moved into chocolate, and you founded Casa Chocolates about uh, four years ago or so? Yeah, I actually started like a lot of people do. I, uh, I was a process – I was a controls engineer, so we, we built very large-scale PLC-based systems uh, doing, interestingly enough, prison and door control systems, so big jails, big integration systems. Uh, and as I sort of phased out of that and became semi-retired, uh, I, I started, like many people do, with a $29 Make Chocolate at Home kit from Chocolate Alchemy, uh, sort of the, the guru online about uh, for getting people started in this. And the thing I found was that I, you know, all of my background is in science and control. So I, I saw a system where I would make chocolate one day, something would go wrong, I'd make it the next day, and it was fine. Uh, three days later, I'd try again, and I'd have something else go wrong. So I knew that there was a process issue going on, but the results were so dramatically better than anything I had had before that it really drove me to try to figure out what was going on, understand it, and get a little bit more into the science of it. So tell me, for, for people that haven't had craft chocolate or bean-to-bar chocolate, when you say that it was so much better than anything else that you ever had, what does that mean? That's great. That's a great question. I mean, it's we're craft chocolate in general is, you know, if you look at all the chocolate made in the world, so chocolate comes from cacao uh, trees or theobroma cacao trees. Uh, you have, it's a lot like wine. I think that's probably the easiest parallel out there. Uh, you know, if you try the, the equivalent of a, uh, a Hershey bar in wine, you're going to go to you know the, the local convenience store and buy yourself an $8 bottle of wine. Uh, on the other hand, a fine chocolate has not only a better bean in it, you know, equivalent to the grape, 
but there's also much more care about how it's made, the harvesting, how it's fermented. There's a whole series of processes that we can go through that get you to the end product. Uh, it's a deeper, it's a greater depth of flavor. Uh, it doesn't, it's not waxy. One of the ways we can tell a cheap chocolate or a consumer chocolate, if you will, is that it leaves a waxy coating on your tongue. Uh, very often it will have, uh, flavor profiles, much like wine. It'll have a floral taste. It'll have, it'll be peppery sometimes. Uh, a lot of terroir that you see in wines will translate over to, uh, uh, to chocolates. It's an experience. So every bar is a little different. Some taste like soil and you'll put those aside and go, I don't like this. You'll have others that are just very fruity. Uh, but it's, it really is in the hands of the maker of a craft chocolate bar to bring out those flavors. And that's what makes it better. It's also a very small portion of the overall chocolate uh, community, if you will, the farmers that make a really fine chocolate bean. Many, many, many of them out there are uh, genetically produced and they're made to mass, you know, to, to, to grow very, very quickly to produce high volumes like what Hershey and Mars and people like that need. We don't deal with anybody like that. We deal with tiny little farmers. Yeah, so this is something that was kind of new to me as I got into this this whole ecosystem because I've, I've drank wine before, but I don't have a, uh, a really discerning palate and I'm not a big coffee fan, so I, I don't know, you know, about a lot of the different types of coffee and the types of beans. But as I got into chocolate, you know, I, I realized, like you said, there's, you know, different regions have different taste profiles, even year over year, the same region will taste different. And then when you take, you know, two or three different people could take a bean and and do several different things with it and make it taste very different. And then they could even combine things with it. And so it really is uh, just kind of the world is your oyster when you get into this. And uh, I'll share a little bit about my background on how I came to this. So you can, uh, you can kind of see where, uh, where, where I entered the domain from about a year and a half ago, I uh, started experimenting with a low carb eating and, and the keto diet. And uh, I still wanted to have chocolate. I was still a huge chocolate fiend, but uh, I started out liking Reese Cups and Hershey Kisses and, and things like that. Um, but as I got more and more into low carb, I wanted to start uh, eating um, less sugary chocolates, and, and I started trying to get into dark chocolate. And I eventually started experimenting with artificial sweeteners. And I know a lot of people have different opinions about those, uh, but I started making some at, at home with just cocoa butter and cocoa powder and, you know, uh, erythritol and, uh, and stevia and things like that. And I, it had a really gritty consistency. And so I figured out that I could I kind of get a good taste, but I could just never get it as smooth as store-bought. And that's when I discovered what a Mellinger was. And I know we'll cover uh, that yes. here in a little while. Um, but I, I got one of those and started experimenting with that. And, and since then, I'm, I'm starting to go further and further back in the process. And so I, I will cover all of that here in a little bit. But before we talk about how you make chocolate, um, I'd like to cover a little bit about the history of chocolate. Is there any uh, key data points or tidbits that you, uh, that you found fairly insightful on in the history of chocolate? Sure. No, it's kind of interesting. The, uh, obviously, we always start with the tree, the uh, Theoboma cacao tree. Uh, the, the seeds are grown in a pod. Um, about two-thirds of the production in the, in the world is from West Africa, the Ivory Coast area. And that's what we would generally refer to as sort of the classic chocolate taste that we're all familiar with when you just go to the store and buy a chocolate bar. Uh, it started as a drink. Many people know that it was used by the Aztecs and Mayans. It was called the drink of the gods. 
And the idea was that kings were allowed to have it, but if you went into battle uh, for the king, you would very be very often be given uh, what was effectively like a tea of chocolate, not necessarily the sweetened version that we have today for a chocolate drink, but it was reward to, to, to let you go into battle. The chocolate that we know today is really only about 150 years old. It was uh, milk chocolate was developed in about 1876 or so by Daniel Peter. Uh, milk powder uh, was combined by uh, Henry Nestle, a name we all know. Uh, then you've got the texture that you're referring to, actually, with a process called conching that uh, Rudolf Lint uh, developed. And Lint chocolates is, in fact, still around, about 1880 or so. Uh, we all know Hershey as a brand, and Hershey started about 1893 or so when uh, Milton Hershey went to the World uh, Columbian Exposition, and he found a bunch of chocolate uh, equipment, bought it, and went back to Pennsylvania. Uh, I think the, the thing that's important about the history of chocolate is that if you look at how long it's been around as a tree, and then you look at two different factors. One is that we as a, as a society really have only known chocolate in bar or uh, bonbon form for about 150 years. We still have a lot of ways to go. There's still a lot that we can do uh, to play with chocolate additives, things like that. So to kind of sum up, I, I think from some of the research I saw, Basically, we, we have evidence going as far back as 1500 BC with some of the fermented beverages, the unsweetened version of chocolate that, that you mentioned. And it basically existed in that form from about 1500 BC until the 1800s when uh, these in, inventors and companies started uh, adding sugar to it and making it more palatable to sort of the European and American types of palates. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair. And this is sort of an interesting story that goes along with this that's been reported by a bunch of people who are much larger manufacturers who actually go down uh, to the chocolate uh, farms down in, in South America. And it's that many of the farmers down there, as of, let's say, 20 years ago or so, actually didn't know what their product tasted like as a bar. So a lot of the larger manufacturers, be, I mean, think about it. There's not a lot of sugar cane down there. So unless you're in you know, the um, the islands or something where sugarcane was grown, you certainly didn't have it. Uh, chocolate trees in general, co- uh, cacao trees, were generally under canopy trees that were grown along with other uh, more profitable crops. It was sort of a secondary crop. So what started happening at one point is that people started bringing the bars down there and saying, look, this is what we make. And it, it's a funny story that many makers tell when they go down there and say, this is what the end product is actually uh, tasting like to the U.S. or to the, to the international palate. And they're always amazed. The trend now is that many manufacturers are trying to empower the people in the fields, the farmers, the producers, to actually let them produce the chocolate on site, the final product on site, and then ship it out to help their economy. So it's, it's moving along. It's a very interesting growth of, a, of, a, of an industry. Yeah, and I also want to mention one, one part of the industry that I'm not incredibly familiar with, but I know it, um, it has a fairly strong following in the, in the craft of the bean-to-bar movement is fair trade chocolates uh, and certified organic. And so I know there are, a, there are some uh, cocoa growers out there that resort to child or slave labor uh, because it's, it's cheaper to, to do and it 
drives more profit. But there is a burgeoning movement of people that are going in and, and putting in certified fair trade practices and being able to prove uh, that, that they don't use that type of labor. And I think a lot of the craft uh, makers are starting to source from, from those places rather than some of the larger or less um, certified uh, outfits. No, that's correct. In fact, we don't buy anything that's not fair trade. Uh, the If you look at how much a farmer makes off of a you know, per kilo or let's say per bag of, uh, of uh, cacao beans and what the, the final yield is to the factory. You know, the old measure used to be 10 to 1 or so. So whatever the raw material cost, the final retail product was 10 to 1. It's now about 5 to 1 in most manufacturing environments. The, what we see in cacao is that it's much greater than that. It's really an embarrassment to the world when we see uh, what people who are doing the farming are getting. And part of that is because it goes through so many hands to get to the final manufacturer, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, there's the intermediate. Very often the, the farms are too small. So, you know, you may have a couple hundred trees and that doesn't generate a whole lot of cacao, but you've got to take it to an intermediate. And then they go to a much larger group through a co-op. Uh, and then that gets distributed through a much larger, uh, uh, dis, you know, an exporter of cacao. Uh, there's lots and lots of people in, uh, along the way that are touching it. And obviously that costs money. The goal is to reduce the number of people touching it and get that money back to the farmer. And fair trade practices are part of that. That makes a lot of sense. And so some of the parts that you described there is really the first part of the overview of chocolate making, which is the harvesting. And I'll have right. some some pictures and graphs on the show notes. So I highly recommend people go out there and, and check that out if you if you have the chance to. But if you haven't seen a cocoa pot, I don't know a great way to explain it. It's sort of the size of a, a really large pine cone, but it's uh, it's 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 kind of like, like the, the the cocoa beans are in this gel, and that gel is encompassed in this hard shell. Uh, Kind of like a coconut, sort of, but do you have a better way to describe a, a cocoa pod? We always think about it like it actually looks like an alien. It, uh, think about a small really football, does. a very That's colorful football, right? And when you pull it apart, it's got uh, tangentially mounted beans, if you will, in this odd mass. And that mass is actually what's used to, and we can talk about fermentation as well, but when, when a, there's a couple of things when you talk about harvesting. So when the cacao tree grows, uh, it's got something called cushions on the uh, all over the branches and the trunk. The unlike a typical fruit tree, what happens with a cacao tree is you get these small little cushions. Flowers are formed, and then five to ten percent of those turn into actual pods. So it's a very low yield. Uh, but what ends up happening after that is that once they grow, they have to be harvested by hand, which is going back to what you were saying about fair trade and about child labor. It's an extremely labor-intensive process. Uh, so you may be able to get, as a single person out there, uh, a couple hundred pods a day. The return on that's very poor. So they bring that back, and then the pod has to be separated by hand. And you have a great picture that I hope you'll post that, that shows an actual cacao pod that's been separated, and you can see the beans. Once that's done, the, the beans are taken and put into large vats, usually three foot by three foot containers. And there's usually three of them to have three different steps in the process. And those beans, the white slimy uh, uh, surface that's around there is generally 
uh, something that is used, it's part of the fermentation process. So the beans are put into these large vats, and over a period of about five to seven days, fermentation occurs, and the beans come out the other end. The Most of that, uh, I always call it slimy. That's probably not the best term for it. It's really a white, pulpy mass. Yeah, I, um, I think you had that right with the alien brain. So if, if you picture 40 cocoa beans uh, surrounded in a Vaseline-type white slime, that makes it look like an alien brain, and then you wrap it up in a football-shaped coconut. That's that's kind of what it look what it what you could imagine it as. It is not something you would think about eating. <laughs> Definitely so, not. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So I mean, it's it's an interesting process, and there's a lot of questions about what made the first person try this. But effectively, you put all these in a big pile. They ferment through a standard fermentation process. Uh, sometimes there's yeast involved, but they, they get fermented, and there's a lot of process control involved in keeping the temperatures right there. They're covered with banana leaves. When they come out the other end, the white slimy stuff is gone, right? It was absorbed as part of this process. The beans are then dumped out and usually sun-dried. There are, you know, most of the smaller uh, groups that are doing this simply put them out on enormous areas. Sometimes they're on the roads. Sometimes they're just on the ground but they're left to dry for a couple of days. So the beans that we see, the brown beans, are actually a post-fermented bean. Okay. And also something you really don't want to eat. It has, we'll test them and we'll look at them just to see what they're like. Uh, but generally, if you eat them, uh, there's some concerns about, you know, molds and things like that that you have to be aware of. But uh, generally, if you eat something like that, it's got a very bitter taste. Yeah, so that is something that was actually shocking to me. For somebody that's eaten milk chocolate or even dark chocolate your whole life, um, if you go and buy a, a jar of cocoa powder and stick your finger in it and taste it, or if you go try to bite into a cocoa bean, you are in for a rude awakening of bitterness, the likes of which you've never known before. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty nasty. Now, the interesting little corollary to that is if you take five different beans from five different regions and you sort of – place yourself away from that nastiness that occurs. You can actually taste the terroir between them. You just have to get used to the fact that it's not going to be at all sweet and sometimes unpleasant. But if you're sampling cocoa beans before you buy them, it is one of the first things I do. And it's only one or two, right? Because we are worried about pathogens and things like that. But you try it just to get a sense for what's going on there. The real trick, of course, is that once they're delivered to you, you, you roast them, which is where all of the, the controls come into play. Okay, so when you first get it, it's fermented. It's, it tastes very bitter. And then tell me some of the science behind roasting, what you do there, kind of rough time frames, and, and what you're looking for out of that process. Okay, so roasting, uh, and again, corollary here is going to be uh, coffee. Uh, mm -hmm. Roasting in cacao beans is something where, uh, there's a lot of people like to think that it's art. It really is science. And the goal here is, uh, I've got a couple of charts that you'll see. One of them is what John Nancy of uh, Chocolate Alchemy uh, talks about, which is really three phases of, of roasting. The idea first is during the first period of time, and the times can be anywhere from 12 minutes to about 25 minutes or so, depending on your bean and the temperatures, right? So the variables that you're involved with here are time and temperature, uh, you want to, in the very beginning of any bean, dry it out. You want to normalize all of the humidity, all of the moisture content, so that you start at a point where you know what you're doing with, with moisture. Then 
depending on how, how quickly you ramp up the temperature and what your oven's able to do, and we can talk about that as well, uh, and then how long you leave it at certain temperatures, you will get a certain bean profile, as we call it. So as a very simple example, if I take a, a kilo of beans and roast them for, uh, let's say, 15 minutes, and I take that very same kilo of beans and I do a secondary roast uh, for 20 minutes, so now I've got two samples for you you will taste a dramatic difference between the two. And what we do when we start testing a bag of beans, when we get samples from vendors, is that we'll actually start at about 12 to 25 minutes or so, and every two minutes or so, we'll be pulling samples and testing them, smelling them, getting a sense for what they're doing, and then we'll go and do a second test for much shorter periods of time. We generally find that within about 30 seconds or so, maybe a minute, is when the flavor profiles change. So you'll get notes of bread, you'll get notes of fruits. Uh, one of my favorites is toast. You'll, you'll smell toast, but it only occurs for like 30 seconds. So you have to know when to effectively pull the beans out of the roaster. So you're saying and that what we see with sorry, you're saying that you could take one one bean and you could roast it for say 15 minutes, 16 minutes, 17 minutes, 18 minutes, and each one of those have a different taste profile with slightly different flavors. Um, and, and if you, over time, that's not really going to change. Once you've roasted it, the, the flavor's kind of locked in. Is that accurate? Exactly. So if I, if I take a bean and roast it for 14 minutes, it doesn't, you know, you really can't re-roast it, if you will. The other trick, of course, that, you know, what we see when we go to conventions and we talk to people about roasting, which is there's really two, there's only two major components in the process that are going to affect the bean. Uh, the tempering is one, and which is the last step in the process, but the roasting is the one that people spend most of their time dealing with. Uh, and again, it's a time and temperature thing. It's also a rate of rise issue. It has to do with how quickly you can bring up temperatures in the oven that you've got uh, to make sure that you're repeatable. You know, how much thermal energy can you apply over a period of time to the same mass. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I can give you, I'll give you an example that we use with a lot of people. Uh, you know, if you think about a cocoa bean uh, as, a, as an ice cube, and you think about the oven as a glass of water, if your glass of water is at 100 degrees and you throw an ice cube in there, a single small ice cube, you're going to get a drop in temperature that's fairly small, and then it equalizes back to effectively whatever the room temperature is. So 100-degree room, 100-degree glass of water, you throw ice in it, you'll get a dip, and then it stabilizes. Imagine, if you will, if you're trying to control your variables in your roast, if the first time you throw uh, 10 kilos of beans in your roaster versus one, it's the same thing as throwing 10 pieces of ice into your piece of glass or into your glass of water versus okay. one. It's one of the most critical variables. You want to keep the same volume of roasting or the same uh, thermal mass, if you will, in there at all times. So once you find a recipe that works for you, you want to note, uh, you know, what what kind of oven you're using, what temperature it was, how much you put in, the configuration that you put it in, and you want to try to be as close to that as possible every single time. You got it. And I think what you'll see is if you look into this, uh, and you've probably seen this already, there's a real... I'm not going to call it a battle. There's a debate out there about whether you should use things like your kitchen oven or what's considered a tray type oven, or whether you should use a rotary type uh, roaster. 
a rotary roaster. You throw everything in. It's got a it's got a rotating bin inside it, if you will. You throw everything in. You set the temperatures and you go. And you don't touch it because the beans are constantly rotating. They're being exposed to the same heat as everything else. Whereas if you roast on a tray in an oven, the thing that we see is that people open and close the oven regularly to shake the beans to make sure there's not a hot spot where they contact the uh, the, the container that it's in, like like a uh, tray. The result of that is that you get these big dips. And I, I've given you a graph that shows effectively that, uh, where oven roasting will have almost a sawtooth uh, response in what you see as far as energy applied goes. Uh, whereas if you look at uh, drum roasting, because it's a closed chamber, you don't have that effect. Okay, so I've actually experienced that firsthand uh, when I tried my, my first batch of beans in a in an oven. I was uh, I put them in about an inch thick, which I think I've learned I need to go much thinner and have it be almost like one bean thickness. And, right. Um, and yeah, every time I opened the opened it, I lost you know 20, 30 degrees. It would never climb back up to the temperature that the, the gauge was actually at before I was pulling it out and shaking it again. All right, so think about it. If you look at the graphs I provided, what ends up happening is you never actually get to the roasting, uh, the profile build, right? You never get to the point where you're developing the flavors because you're going up and down. You, you have to think about it as the area under the curve is the amount of energy that you're adding to the beans to cook them. So if you're constantly opening and closing your oven just to check it or to shake the, uh, uh, the trays, you never get to a point where you're applying enough energy to the entire mass of the beans to produce the chain, the chemical changes that you want. So, so what so, tips do you have for someone who wants to get started at home, wants to try roasting their own beans? Should they just be happy to experiment batch by batch and not really have consistency between the batches? No, I think there's a couple of things you can do because roasting, and you can tell, I mean, we, we can talk a little bit more about the controls you need to properly roast, but if you have to make a decision, you have to say, okay, I'm only going to use one kilo every time, whatever the number is, half a kilo, one kilo. If you've decided that you're going to tray roast, the variability in using a tray versus a rotary roaster in taste, if you simply leave both systems closed and let them do their deal, isn't dramatic. What causes the variation is opening and closing the oven door all the time. So, you know, if you don't want to spend a lot of money, and most people have ovens, uh, you're much better off investing in what you did is actually the right way to do it. You buy pre-roasted beans, right? Reduce a whole lot of variables right there. Simply buy pre-roasted beans and then practice on making chocolate. Practice your tempering techniques, you know, the the way that you make a final chocolate bar. Work with uh, flavors and profiles. Once you do that and you have your uh, melanger, that way you get that creaminess. You understand what it tastes like to have a 70% bar versus an 80% bar. That really, and because someone else is doing your roasting, a professional, if you will, you're not having to buy a lot of stuff and inject 20 or 30 variables into your equation. All you're doing is saying, okay, I'm buying pre-roasted beans. Once you get the rest of the processes down, then go back because now you've got the rest of that system stabilized, right? You've got, you know how to temper, you know how to mold, you know what all those other variables are. Now inject something where you can start playing with the roasting. And as long as you're, if you're going to do the pre-roasted beans, as long as you're getting them from a, a source that is fairly well established and has some good controls, you know you're going to get consistency batch over batch. Is that fair to say? That's exactly right. Okay. 
That's exactly right. And you said it earlier, uh, fermentation batches change season to season. Cacao is often harvested a couple times a year, uh, depending on how the, how the pods are growing. Uh, fermentation changes per batch. So what we like to do, when, and I did the same thing when I started, I would buy, you know, four kilos of Belize, four kilos of Dominican, four kilos of, of something else. And I would simply practice on those. And then I got to the point where I said, I don't like the way this tastes. And I would simply throw those away, not throw them away, but it would be no longer something I was interested in until I found a couple of profiles that I enjoyed. Then I started honing in on it. Again, it's a lot like making wine or something else where you say, I have a certain, my flavor profile may be very different as far as what I prefer than other people. Right. Some people like a super fruity chocolate. Some people don't. So I, I tend to like a much deeper, richer chocolate. Yeah, and the, the way I kind of think of roasting is the way I think of cooking brisket on a barbecue. You know, you can oh, you can great. use a you can use a pellet grill, you can use a, a gas grill, you can use a charcoal grill. You can wrap it, you can not wrap it, you can use salt and pepper, you can use other exotic rubs. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but um, really, what you're trying to do is find the end result that that makes you happy. Right. I 100% agree, except for the gas grill. We never want to use a gas grill. <laughs> so I actually had to start learning how to cook brisket on an offset gas grill. So I would say that that is uh, a valid way to start, but I have graduated up to the uh, the pellet grill, and I'm very happy with that. Okay, very good. So you're, you're, you're on your way. Uh, since we're from Texas, you know, we're very picky about these things. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, so after you get so. some beans roasted, then you need to crack and winnow. And uh, I know there's some, some, some tips and tricks at home, but effectively what you're doing there is you're, you're, you're cracking it so the shell starts to separate from the bean, and then the winnowing um, fully disconnects it and, and, and kind of separates the two so that what you're left with is, is just the, the bean itself, right, the, the pure. Absolutely. And the, the really easy way to do that, uh, and you'll see lots of examples online, is you simply take uh, – so that process of roasting does shrink the bean down some because you're losing some water. There is some expansion that occurs during that process as well. It does separate the husk out to some degree. When you do crack it, whether it's by hand or through a small machine, uh, you can use a hairdryer to winnow. And the idea there is simply blow out all of the, the outside husk and get yourself exactly what you said, which is a bunch of nibs. And you'll see it. There's a, there's a pretty dramatic color change from sort of a gray bowl all of a sudden you've got this rich dark brown and that's all the nibs. You do want to get rid of almost all of the, the husk because that will change the flavor a little bit. Yeah, and uh, like you said, a hairdryer is a great thing to use if you're getting started at home. Uh, make sure that you wear some goggles and maybe an apron because <laughs> you will have a fine layer of, uh, of dust and shells uh, in, in your, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, in your, in your eyes, in your ears, every, everywhere. Uh, and then yeah, do keep the temperature low. That's the other thing that we see is we, uh, we've had a couple of people we've talked to that were having problems with shifts in flavor, and it turns out they were using a hairdryer that was extremely hot. It was almost a secondary roast. So when you're doing this, put your hairdryer on low uh, temperature and blow it out that way. If you can put your hand under it, you're pretty safe with what you're doing to the beans, to the nibs. Okay. So let's summarize up to this point. So um, you can buy pre-roasted beans if you want to take some of the legwork out at the beginning, or you can get fermented beans and roast them yourself and find a roasting method that works for you. And then you can either crack them by hand, or you can use, uh, there's certain juicers out there that you can run them through to get them cracked. 
Um, if you're doing it for the first time, I would say get a few friends and uh, just go crack them by hand and have some good conversation over a right. couple hours while you do it. Um, and then, like you said, I, I just put it in a big, uh, kind of a big metal mixing bowl and took a hairdryer on the lowest, coolest setting and circled around until I got all of the husks out. And then I was left with essentially uh, just the, the crunched up cocoa beans, um, ready to do whatever I wanted with them. And at that point, how long will the cocoa beans stay stable and fresh in, in, in that form? Uh, quite a while. We, we've seen them stored for almost a year sometimes. And again, the concern, just like with any, uh, any type of food, you want to keep it uh, there's no water in it, obviously, so you, you have some issues there of not having to worry too much about uh, mold growth and things like that. But you do want to, if you're not going to use it immediately, I generally vacuum seal it in, in you know, a food saver or something similar to that and put them away. If I know that I'm not going to get to the grinding or conching processes right then, at least I know they're, they're stable and there's not a lot of air in there. Uh, not super critical, but I certainly wouldn't leave them out for six months. Okay. And then at that point, if you're at home, you have a couple of options. You can either invest in a, a Mellinger, an, an at-home Mellinger, which will do the grinding for you, or you can use a blender or do some things by hand. But if you if you use anything short of a Mellinger, you need to be prepared to have a very gritty chocolate that may have a good taste profile, but it's not going to be it's not going to have a creamy, smooth consistency like a like a store-bought bar or anything like that. Yeah, in fact, we've seen a bunch of people use things like uh, blenders, and it just destroys the blender. And you're right. It's really, this is one of those things where it's one of the first things you should probably buy if you're going to get into this. There are a couple hundred bucks you can buy them used for about half of that. But uh, a good Mellinger or Melanger is really the way to do two things. It drives off some of the, the volatiles that are in the chocolate. In fact, when you when you do this process and you throw everything in, you'll smell a lot of what's almost acetic acid coming off of it. Mm-hmm. Uh as you do this grinding process, whether it's through an old stone grinder, which is what they still do in Mexico uh, by hand, or whether you put it into a mechanical machine, an electromechanical machine that's working, you will notice a pretty dramatic change in the smell uh, over that time period. And that's one of the ways that we look at how we're doing on the processing is to make sure that those volatiles aren't coming off anymore. And you want to leave the top open so that they can't escape. Okay. So you start the grinding, it's going to release some of the acetic acid, which also gets released a little bit during the roasting, but more uh, it's released during right. the, the grinding. And, and then it's, it's more going, evident in the grinding, right. Okay. And, and then it's going to start breaking it down into smaller and smaller particles, eventually getting smaller than I think it's maybe, you tell me if I'm wrong, 20 microns, which is what the, the human tongue can basically distinguish yep. between one particle and another. Yeah, 15 to 20 microns is what most people taste. And there's a, there's a little device called a grinometer that uh, simply takes a drop of chocolate and spreads it over a, uh, a, a piece of metal that's been milled. And you can look at what the smear is and tell what the, uh, what the particulate size is. It's a very crude way of doing it. The easiest way is to put it on your tongue and taste it. Uh, and also keep in mind, one of the things we, we didn't mention yet is that you do have to add sugar at this point. And the sugar itself... I generally add it about a day into the process. Um, there's a lot of questions about whether sugar will absorb the acetic acid and not let it go. I, I haven't done extensive testing with that. My habit is to, in my process, is to put it in about a day later. That, and then you'll get additional um, um, 
you'll you'll get an additional uh, smoothing of the chocolate because it's like a secondary abrasive in there. Uh, once that's done, then you can really start tasting it and not get annoyed at the at the hundred percent chocolate taste in there, uh, and get a sense for what it's doing. It's also a good time to either add sugar or get a feeling for where you're at in the process. It should taste good before you take it out. Chocolate doesn't change that much after that point. If it doesn't taste good, think about what you're doing. Yeah, that's a really good tip to add the, the sugar later on in the process to avoid that. I never, I never thought about the, the flavors from like the acid being able to, to go into that, but um, that's definitely something that I need to add to my list of things to try. Uh, and there's also a few other things that you could add here. So if you wanted to add uh, milk powder to make milk chocolate, you could. If you have some kind of other dry powder for flavoring, I know there's like dry banana powder that you could add. Um, but one thing that I understand you don't want to add is anything water-based. So you don't want to put any honey. If you have brown sugar, you've got to dry it out to make sure there's no moisture right. in it. Um, you don't want to put milk in. You want to make sure you put milk powder um, and I haven't done this firsthand, but I've read basically any article you read about chocolate says that water is the uh, the arch rival of chocolate. It is. It will make it seize, and what you'll end up with is this enormous ball of, of hard chocolate. You, and you, you, you just throw it out. I mean, there's not much you can do with it at that point. Um, it's. I have seen it happen. I am fortunate that I've never had it happen to me. Uh, when you're making truffles and things, you kind of get the same effect because you're adding something, you know, you're adding oils and flavors and things like that. My preference is to never really add anything. A lot of people will add vanilla, actual vanilla beans, uh, and you can't use the, you can't use extract because that obviously has water in it. Uh, but vanilla beans, uh, we've seen people add other types of sugars. Uh, one of the things we always suggest to people to do when they're starting is to go ahead and enjoy the bean and try to understand what it's doing. If you taste a lot of vanilla in a chocolate, it's often a sign of somebody trying to mask a mistake in the process. So that's something I wanted to ask you is what's the purpose of putting vanilla in? Is it, uh, like you said, it's something to mask uh, potentially lower quality beans, um, but is there, uh, is there a reason to put that in or not? Is it just kind of a personal preference? I think I think personal preference is probably the best way to put it. I know that my experience over the last couple of years has been that if I taste vanilla in a chocolate, I often will also get notes of mold or perhaps an over-roast where it tastes a little burned or some smokiness. Hmm. And my feeling is that it was done on purpose. It, the amount of vanilla, first of all, you have to buy real vanilla beans. It can't be, you know, cheapo stuff if you're going to do this. And you really do want to try to be careful about how much you add it should almost be undetectable, again, to my palate, uh, in order to get the effect that people like. A lot of it's because vanilla is fun, right? It's in chocolate chip cookies and some things like that. So there is a flavor note of vanilla. Keep in mind there's an awful lot of chocolate beans out there, cacao beans, that actually have a vanilla uh, flavor profile to it too. So if you like that, you're probably better off finding a vanilla finding a bean that's got some of those notes to it, some of those uh, floral and vanilla notes. Uh, even when you find beans that are grown next to vanilla, which is somewhat common, like in Hawaii and places like that, you'll get some of that out of the terroir. So, and again, you can tell I'm kind of a minimalist. I want to keep <laughs> as much as possible out of the process. Uh, the bars that we manufacture and sell have really, they're all based on simply cacao and sugar, uh, we have a couple of additives that we do. They're all done after the process. 
but it's really very minimal. We don't even add soy lecithin, which is designed to, you know, take care of moisture issues and things like that. But it's, uh, I'm, I'm a minimalist. On the other hand, if you go to any store and you pick up a chocolate bar and you look at the back of it, you may see five or six ingredients. In my mind, I don't like to see that because it's not in my world's craft chocolate. So I want to I want to ask you about a few of these that you've mentioned. So soy lecithin is that mainly something that uh, people put in to reduce the amount of grinding time because it helps the uh, like the, the cocoa butter and the and the sugar and everything combine. It's not really an emulsifier. It's really it's it, it helps it if you're in a high humidity environment. Uh, I've read a lot of different studies on why people use it. I think the reason that we stopped even considering it was because of soy allergies. If you have if you have it in there at all, whatever percentage it is, you have to at least show what it is, uh, and it just becomes a barrier uh, to somebody enjoying it because they're worried about it. There's very few people are allergic to chocolate and sugar. So from your perspective, not really any need for it at all? I haven't ever needed it. It's we. I played with it just like everybody else does for the first year or two, and at one point I was out, so I made chocolate without it, and there was no discerning difference. Hmm. I also pay attention and have generally higher fat beans. So, you know, a cacao bean may be from 40 to 60% fat content. Because of what I'm currently using, uh, it's a very uh, fluid bean uh, when it's when it's ground. So I, I generally don't need anything to change what it's doing. Okay. What about salt? So there's a couple of different things, and we've done some work on this. There's a couple of different things people do. There's obviously salts come from all over the world, all different types of salts. The idea is that salt enhances the flavor of the chocolate. And we've seen everything from people throwing a little bit of salt in at the very end of a grind and tasting it to try to bring out some of the the certain notes in the chocolate to sprinkling salt on the back of the bars. Um, We make a bar that has got uh, a little bit of cayenne in it. Uh, You probably tried it at the show. And then it's got sugar on the bottom. And people very often ask us whether or not that's uh, salt. The idea is that you get the sensation of the sugar and the crunch. Then you taste the chocolate, which goes over, you know, it melts over your tongue because of the fat. And then at the very end, you get the cayenne. It's an exciting bar to try. We've tried that same bar with with salt, and it completely disrupts the flavor profile. So, yes, people use sea salt, which is a what I would consider a milder form of salt, if you will. I don't particularly like the flavor profile, but it is out there. How about cocoa butter? Uh, that's also something I really don't add a lot. Um, it's Cocoa butter is really added if you have, first of all, you should use deodorized cocoa butter because you don't want to add other flavors. If you're very concerned about fair trade and you're very concerned about non-GMO and making sure that you know your sources, you ideally will buy the cocoa butter from the same source and at least know that it's fair trade. I use deodorized if I ever do but it's in part of the tempering process. Uh, I really don't use it as part of it. And the only time I've ever had to use it is if I buy a bean that's very low fat and it ends up being difficult to pour. And sometimes I'll just add, and I haven't done this for probably two years, but there was a bean we were using from Ecuador that was just thick and it was hard to pour even at 85 or 80%. Uh, it was an issue at 70%. It was an issue. We finally got to the point where we added a little bit of uh, uh, cocoa butter simply to give it a little bit more flow. But again, small percentages, not 5 or 10%. Okay. 
And so for other things that you can add, I know at the show I saw some people were experimenting with different essential oils and um, yeah. anything that is water-based, like if you did want to add milk or anything like that, you're going you're gonna to do that at the, um, I guess, right at the end as you're about to temper it. Is that the, the, the place that you would put that? Well, even there, if you, if you put water anywhere in this process, uh, literally from the beginning to the end, you're going to have a problem. So water should not be anywhere near your, your area that you're cooking. Uh, even a drop or two of water coming off of a sink uh, can be a problem. So what we always suggest is that you simply don't use anything with water at all. Uh, in the tempering process, you can add flavorings and things like that, but you've got to be really sure about what you're doing and always test. Right, because it could change the way it tempers. It could change the way that it sets. Uh, we've seen it do strange things. I, and again, you know, I'm a purist. I really don't like adding a lot of things to the chocolate because why am I using a, a really fine quality bean uh, manufactured or farmed by 2 or 3% of the world if I'm going to go add a bunch of orange oil or, or, or any other flavoring to it? Very good point. So... Let's move on to tempering because I know there's a good amount of science here and some very specific temperatures that you have to take it through. So give us an overview of that and what people can do at home if they want to get started in that. Sure. So, And you're right. Tempering is sort of the black art of, of chocolate making. It should not be. Uh, the idea is that chocolate's actually got several crystalline forms in it, uh, and they're called forms. So it's, you know, form 3, form 4, form 5. And chocolate uh, in – in just when you melt it, it's got a bunch of different forms in there. And if you bring it to a certain temperature, all of the crystals disappear. So now you've got this liquid chocolate sitting there. If you simply let it cool, it will probably separate into several of those, and it'll do something called blooming. You'll see these white marks all over your chocolate if it just sits out on the counter. And that's really the cocoa butter separating from the cocoa mass. It's not a bad thing. It looks weird. It tastes a little gritty. But the goal is to make a chocolate that has a snap and it's shiny. And the only real way to do that is to form what's called a Form 4 crystal. Uh, the way you do it is you, you melt the chocolate down so that everything's, you know, all, the, all of the crystals are gone. You then cool it to a, you know, 80, 82 degrees, and then you bring it back up uh, to 90, 92, 94, depending on what the chocolate is and what you're doing personally. Uh, and then you, you pour it, but you have to stabilize at a certain temperature. So I'm, I'm grossly over, oversimplifying the process. Uh, there's two different ways to do this. One is that you do something called table tempering, where you'll melt the chocolate, pour it out on a, on a slab. That will cool it because it absorbs the heat, obviously. And then you, you can add seed chocolate that's a little warmer and bring the whole mass up to a certain temperature. Again, depending on whether it's, you know, whether it's milk chocolate or dark chocolate. And that is a way to cause yourself a lot of pain and anguish. It's easy to do for people that do it all the time because you not only look at the temperature, but you look at the way the chocolate feels. So if you have the ability to find somebody who can table temper well, it's a great thing to do because they'll teach you how to do it. And again, it's a visual issue. It's a feel issue. Um, I still do it once in a while just to practice. But really, the best way to do it is to use, uh, and this, these are all over the Internet, but you can either buy a tempering machine, which is a little bit costly, uh, and what it does is it brings it to the proper temperature and cycles it up properly. The other way to do it is what's called seeding. And it's uh, I won't go into it here because it's a longer process, but basically what you're doing is you're making 
uh, a very dense cocoa or a very dense cocoa butter mass of of the crystals that form properly for for tempering. You'll take your coke, your chocolate that you've already made. You bring it up to about 94 degrees and you pour the seed in there. And it's a one percent. It looks like a a gel, a sort of a white gel, but it's basically cocoa butter that's been melted and kept at 94 or 92 degrees for 24 hours. You pour it in and it performs a perfect temper. There is more arguments online about tempering, about how you can do it and about what process is. But in the end, you're still doing the same thing. You're, you're heating it up to destroy all the crystals. You're cooling it down and you're bringing it up, whether you use a seed method that is taking a bunch of already tempered chocolate and throwing it in there to provide the crystal structures, or you're taking the seed, the silk is what it's called, and pouring it in there, or whether you're doing table tempering, the process is effectively the same. The chemical process is the same. You're trying to develop these crystals that are designed specifically to allow the chocolate to pop and to look shiny. If your chocolate is dull or if it melts in your hands, it's not tempered. So to sum up some of my experiences, if you've ever melted chocolate and dipped a strawberry in it and then it uh, is not stable in anything other than the refrigerator, that's an example of it losing its temper. And um, I have never been brave enough to try the, uh, the table tempering method because I kind of look at that like marble slab ice cream. Uh, if I'm going to go do something crazy like that, I'm going to go pay someone to do that. I'm not going to uh, sprawl ice cream out on my, uh, my granite countertops at home or something like that. Um, the, the method that I'm using right now, I'd like, I'd like some feedback on it, is I will take uh, – Grinded, uh, grinded chocolate, so it'll be around 115, 120 degrees, and then I will um, uh, spatula it into a mixing bowl, and then I'll put that mixing bowl um, over cooler water, and I'll um, stir it uh, for a while. I mean, maybe like 10, 15 minutes as I uh, as I keep replacing the water below it, or put a little bit of ice, and I monitor it with a with a thermometer until it goes down to around 80 degrees, and then I'll take the the uh, mixing bowl and I'll put it over a double boiler and bring it up to back up to about 90. And so that's a method that I'm using, but I'm really curious if that's uh, just a lot of work or a lot of trouble or if you think that's a good no. approach. No, and the reason, the, the reason that I stopped doing that in small production batches is that the likelihood that you're going to get water in, in, in the form of steam coming up and around the double boiler is relatively high. Right. So you're at the, I mean, you think about it, you bought the beans, you've done the grinding, the winnowing, you've gone through all this multi-day process. And in the end, I simply didn't want to deal with the fact there's nothing wrong with your method. It's used all over the place. I think one thing we need to mention quickly is that it is absolutely critical that you have a really, really good thermometer. And in fact, one of the things we tell people because of a lesson we learned here is you buy two of them and you make sure they match all the time. Uh, digital thermometers are great, but don't buy really cheap ones. You know, spend these 70 bucks on the digital thermometer because we had a problem here for a while in our lab setting where I was taking measurements and nothing was working. It was terrible. Turned out the thermometer was five degrees off. I had either dropped it or it was a low battery. There was some issue going on with it. Uh, don't ever use the infrared ones. They tend to be widely variable unless you're buying really expensive ones, lab grade stuff. Uh, but a couple of good thermometers, even the quick read ones, as long as they agree with each other beforehand, you know, the old test, you put it in a, in a, in a, uh, in ice and it should read 32 and then you put it in boiling water and it should read 212. 
if it's doing that and they're both the same, you now have a pair of calibr- semi-calibrated thermometers you can use. Brian, what you're, you're saying works. You're, you're causing me to rethink all of the bad briskets and all of the other things that I've cooked with my cheap $20 uh, thermometer and my infrared, and now I'm wondering if I have been drastically over and under cooking because of that. Uh, <laughs> see, we can do another podcast at some point about brisket making, and I'll tell you what I do with that. Oh, man. if you, we, uh, we were doing it's, – It's a date. We, we, we should put that on the books. Oh, yeah. No, I'm all over that. <laughs> Okay, so if somebody wanted to get started at home, um, should they try to make their own silk, or should they buy uh, buy some to get started? Or? I think buying some up front. I mean, if you think about it, the cost, if you have a sous vide already, which is the little the little cooker that yep. it's a immersion uh, temperature control unit, if you've already got one, you can make silk all day long. And again, I'm going to point people to chocolatealchemy.com. Uh, he is a wealth of information, and he's he's one of the people out there. I think. I, it's probably un, unreasonable to say that he has not funded or started 90% of the people that are out there doing chocolate. Uh, he has a whole section on using a sous vide to make silk. It is extremely easy. I have uh, to give that a at home and I've never, never looked into that. Oh yeah. yeah. No, silk's magical. It is, you know, there's, there's people out there that are selling these very expensive machines to make silk uh, and they work very well in production environments for the home uh, craft maker. It's super easy, and I think what you'll find is all you have to do is to heat your chocolate up to about 93 degrees, throw uh, 1% silk in there, and you're done. I mean, it makes shiny, wonderful chocolate bars. Uh, you know, keep track of the temperature, obviously. You don't want to go too low, but we've been using silk for about a year and a half now, and we never have a tempering issue. Yeah, that is definitely something that I, I need to experiment with. Uh, yeah. So tell me, uh, tell me your strategy for molding once you have once you have a timber. Um, I've, at home, I've been pouring it in some molds, and then I can't really decide whether I leave it out on the counter, if I leave it in the fridge for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I, I feel like putting it in the freezer is a bad idea because I've seen it go uh, a little bit. Yeah, uh, freezer's a bad idea. A little, a, a little too dramatic. So, what, what would you recommend for the home, and then what, what do you do at your operation? Okay, so there's two, again, there's two answers to this one. Uh, if you were to properly temper chocolate and leave it out on the counter, it's going to be fine. Uh, it will set, it will look glossy, it'll be pretty, and it'll pop out of the mold. It may take an hour and a half, but it'll pop out of the mold. Where, and again, it depends on room temperatures too, right? If you're in Houston, Texas, and it's extremely humid, or if you're in Ghana, and it's, you know, 95 degrees all the time, this is not a good valid way of doing it. What we generally do is we'll take the chocolate, pour it, let it sit until we have enough. Usually it's, you know, 30, 40 molds. And then we put them in a standard refrigerator. The important thing here is that when we pour, we keep the molds at about 85 degrees because it'll keep you from getting mold marks. Then we put all of them in the refrigerator at the same time. What that does is it keeps the refrigerator from getting a lot of humidity issues going on. The rooms are air-conditioned, the the area is air-conditioned, so we don't have a lot of latent humidity in the air. Once we do that, we close the the, the refrigerator and leave it there for about 15 minutes. If we open the door at that point, all of the molds, all of the chocolate has shrunken just a tiny bit, and you just turn the mold over and they drop right out. Shiny, pretty, perfect chocolate. So pour it on the counter, keep it at 85 degrees while you're doing that, put it in the fridge for about 15 minutes, pull it out, and it should pop right out. 
Yeah, it's very easy. Now, in the, the reason you'll see problems is that, A, if you don't clean your molds, right, so the molds should be polished every time with a very soft cloth. They should not be dirty. Uh, you should have taken all the old chocolate off generally. Um, in production, you can just clean the mold area, not the outside. Uh, and then you want to look for things like whether or not it's separating. The other thing that we see people do that I had actually did early on is that if you put the molds right back in or if you pour directly out, so let's say you're doing a short production run of 100 uh, bars or something, and you take a mold out and you, you drop the bars out and you put another, you put more chocolate in it, if you haven't brought it up to a reasonable temperature, room temperature, let's say 80, 85, not that's higher than room temperature, but let's say you bring it up to around that, you'll be fine. If it's too cold, you'll actually cause the chocolate as you pour it in to set. And then you'll have sticking problems, you'll have mold marks, you'll have a whole lot of other things go on that just aren't very pretty. So when we see cloudy chocolate, uh, that's often part of the problem that we see. So I'd like some feedback here, too, because the last batch that I made, I uh, I did my, normally temp- my normal tempering method. I poured it into molds, and then I had to leave, and so I wasn't able to stick it in the fridge. So I said, well, I'll just leave it sitting out on the counter for a while. I ended up leaving it out for a couple of hours. And when I came back, it was kind of hard to get out of the mold, and it had bloomed a little bit where, uh, you know, it, it sort of looked like a, like a, like a piece of marble, the, the, the chocolate itself did. Right. And my wife and I have a constant battle uh, around what the right temperature is for our house. Um, she wants it to be 77. I would like it to be somewhere around 73, 74. So the house always stays at 77. Um, so I was thinking that it might have been a little bit too warm for it to uh, – I know, like probably not. Lower down, but what do you think it could have been? Yeah, it's more, it's, there's two possibilities. If you've got swirling marks, it's possible that you cert- you just weren't mixing the chocolate enough while you were tempering it. Okay. Um, if it looked like marble, uh, it's very often that we see that. Again, this goes back to the temperature control, right? Time, we always talk about the three T's, time, temperature, and technique. If you don't have your temperature set right, and if you're off like even one or two degrees, uh, and again, you know, uh, a consumer grade uh, thermometer, a lower end thermometer that you buy on eBay for 15 bucks won't cut it. Um, but chocolate's very picky. And during the tempering process, you really have to keep it in that 92, 93, you know, 91, depending on what chocolate you're doing, range. If you drift too much, you're going to throw it out of temper and you'll get things like blooming and you'll get streaks and things like that. Okay. Maybe that was due to my, my cheap thermometer that I... Uh... Probably need to I'm not judging. Replace. It works on your brisket. <laughs> okay, well, so this has been a, a great history of chocolate and a great overview of the process. We hope you're enjoying the For the Love of Data podcast. If you are, please support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts, such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. To stay plugged in to all things data, subscribe to our mailing list at ForTheLoveOfData.com. You can also find show notes for all our episodes on the website as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic or ideas for future episodes. To get in touch, tweet us at Love of Data or at Robert Fur on Twitter. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, keep spreading the love of data to the world around you.